hello and welcome to Writers on Writing on uh, 88.9 KUCI-FM. We are broadcasting from the University of California, Irvine campus, and on the web at KUCI.org and on iTunes at College Radio. Today is Wednesday, February 29th, 2012, and I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett. My guests today are Nathan Englander and Pam Houston. First up is Nathan Englander. He is the author of the internationally best-selling story collection for the relief of unbearable urges and the novel The Ministry of Special Cases. His short fiction and essays have appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Atlantic Monthly, and The Washington Post, as well as the O. Henry Prize stories and numerous editions of the best American short stories. He's been translated into more than a dozen languages and has won two million prizes and uh, teaches at the graduate writing program at Hunter College. And in the summer, he teaches a course for NYU's Writers in Paris program. He's here to talk about his new short story collection, What We Talk About When We Talk About Anne Frank. And uh, it's published by Knopf, and it's a killer collection. I, I just am so happy to have him here. Hi, Nathan. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, sure, of course. I uh, I first read this, the title story of the collection in the December um, New Yorker, um, what we talk about when we talk about Anne Frank. And um, it was the first story in that magazine in a long time that, that I read that knocked me out. Will you talk a bit about that story and where it came from? Uh, sure. I mean, the... I pause here on live radio. It's a thousand different threads come uh, rushing, twisting through my brain. But, uh, yeah, every story has a certain kind of genesis. This one, I think, um, the story is about two couples who end up playing this game, which you can call it the Anne Frank game or the Righteous Gentile game or the Who Will Hide Me game. But it's basically that in the event of a second Holocaust, sort of which of your Gentile neighbors would hide you mm-hmm. um, is the game. And the point is, uh, you know, I'm... Very American is is the point. Uh, we've lived here a long time. My family have no relatives with accents or anything like that. And you know, my great uncle who died in World War II was wearing an American uniform. And uh, and the idea is that my sister and I, she's still deeply religious. I am very secular, but we were sent to Jewish school our whole life out in suburbia to yeshiva. And I, I just uh, we we basically have sort of old mentality heads. It's like we're the kids of survivors. We're very old country in the way we think. Mm-hmm. And on, and uh, until this story was out in the world, until it was in the New Yorker or in this book, I had no idea that other people played this game, but I thought it's a game that my sister had invented in our house and only we played. And uh, basically, you know, maybe 20 years ago, she was talking when we were already basically adults, she was talking about a couple we knew. You know, she just said simply, you know, a sister to a brother whispered in my ear kind of thing. He would hide us, and she would turn us in, which is a line, you know, in the story, just mm-hmm. that way. And I, mm-hmm. it really just stayed with me for basically two decades because I thought that guy would hide us, and his wife would turn us in. I mean, nobody <laughs> heard, nobody knew, nobody was betrayed, but just the thought of it was so deeply true to me. I just could never shake it. And then uh, a while back, I sort of took a half step back from my own reality and thought about this game we played, and thought it's very normal to me, very normal to my sister, um, but really a deeply pathological thing to engage in, and that's sort of how the story was born. Interesting. Um, you know, you, you're you really a master of diving deep beyond uh, how things seem, and and so as I was reading your stories, I was curious how stories in general 
evolve for you in terms of getting at the layers beneath the surface? When you begin, like with this story or or any of the others, really, do you know more or less uh, where you wish to go, or or do you hope for surprises, and do you do you plan on surprises? Uh, I guess it's always. I mean, I'm a big believer in process, and one thing I that sort of become clear to me lately is a, a process has to have parts to it or it's not a process. You know, this idea you just can't sit down and write the final draft. There, there's just, there's always, a, you know, you're building a real. I'm such a deep believer that a fictional reality is as real or more real than the world we live in if it's functioning. It's not a lesser world to me. It's, you know, and the idea is when you start forcing, you know, the start of writing something should be forced. I mean, you're building it. It's, it's, it's not alive yet. And that idea of, you know, where I draw you and I make you taller and I make you shorter and I, you know, move the, you know, move this radio show. First it's in Alaska and then it's in Texas. And I'm like, oh, I think I'll settle on California. Irvine sounds, you know, it, my point is at some point the stories, I said point a lot, um, uh, is that, <laughs> is that it's gonna, it's, once it starts taking shape, it's gonna make its own demands. And I think I'm always, just working really hard and pulling out handfuls of air and driving to the point where the story is going to make all its own demands, and then it's a matter of listening. I mean, I have those friends, you know, uh, the writer Colson Whitehead, who's a, a dear friend and lives down the block, you know, say, oh, you want to have lunch Tuesday? Say, oh, I, I can't do Tuesday, I can do Thursday, I'll be finishing Chapter 9 on Tuesday. Like, I feel like he really, you know, his process, is, it's, you know, one nice thing about having writer friends, he's... Uh, so much more aware of how things are unfolding or how a novel is mapped by the time he sits down to write it. He really has a clear vision in a certain way. Obviously, things change. But for me, yeah, I think it really is a much more, for someone who tries to be ironical, I think it's a much more sort of touchy-feely listening to the story and, and having no... And the point is, you could be writing to, towards a point. If I say at the end of this story, I want, you know, everybody's going to, you know, the main character's going to be in a car crash and die and is going to end at his grave you know if that's the if you spend years writing towards that point if in the end it demands that you know he makes a left turn and is saved and it you know ends with him at a movie theater eating popcorn like i think you also have to listen to that so i think even even when i'm sure something is heading in the direction i feel it's really a dangerous thing to be it, it, it can't ever be about my needs it always has to be about the story the story's needs no matter how bad i want something to happen so then, when you begin, uh, how do you how do you parse the the ideas that that have substance, or do you do you begin stories that after a page you see there's nowhere to go, you put it aside, start a new one? How does that work for you? Um, I guess, I guess you know part of it, and I think there's a story in this book called The Reader, which is mm-hmm. sort of about the writing life and book tour, and really this idea of you know the writer's commitment and the and the reader's commitment. Basically, uh, you know, the sort of madness of being dedicated to craft or art, there's a stubbornness built in, and that's a terrifying thing, because how do you ever know? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? If you're, you know, this thing that we, when it looks all romantical around the arts, and you say, wow, that person's living in a garret, and he's starving to death, but he is going to become, you know, an electric sitar star. You know, he's convinced, like, how do you know that that's the right mm-hmm. path for you? So my point is, back to the story level, there's this great stubbornness built in where I, I just, if I feel like that's a story that's going to get written, I really believe that if you sit there long enough and work hard enough, it will make itself known. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, 
Yeah, I, yeah. I, I will just sit forever over a story if that's the one. I mean, obviously, you start one, you, you move around. But, yeah, once I'm committed, I, I, I don't know. I just feel like that engagement, that is the whole process to me, I have to say. Because when you're, when you're on fire, when you're writing, when you're lit in the zone, the muse, whatever you want to call it, that is the greatest joy. I mean, that's, you know, this out of truly disassociative out-of-body experience. And mm-hmm. I think the true challenge of writing, at least for me, is that emotional engagement, the sitting down and, and locking in is so, you know, you know what work is lies ahead and what challenges lie ahead, lie ahead. And even that, again, that to engage with that level of emotion is a lot. So I think really all the hard work for me is, is facing the task at hand. Mm-hmm. Um, I like how you play with structure. The, the reader was a bit different because the the author's name is the author. He's never named. And right. in another story, everything I know about my family on my mother's side has um, 63 short numbered sections. Talk about that one. Yeah, I, um, I guess, and and the the way character forms and the way it melds, and I sometimes can mention a reference point, especially if it's. Uh, I usually, again, this book is really different on a, on a lot of fronts. What would link all these stories is a different way of engaging with intimacy. It's it's so strange for me to be able to say, oh yes, that's a game my sister and I played, and acknowledge it. And in this story, everything I know about my family. On my mother's side, which was first in Esquire a couple of years ago, it's one of the older ones that that fit with the theme. Once I'd written, you know, the majority of the book, mm-hmm. but um, but I guess oh, the point is it starts with the main character and his, which is uh, I guess called Nathan in this story, but um, and his girlfriend, which it's the way people meld and characters meld and history meld when you're building something. I wanted to explore that line, whereas I already said, you know, my preaching, my Bible-thumping belief in fiction, but that it's truer than truth. And I wanted to look at this line. I'm always always amazed when sort of, or not amazed, but when these memoirists get in trouble for lying. Mm-hmm. There's fiction, you know what I'm saying? If, if, if the whole idea, if I've written my whole life story and it ends with this interview, but I'm right now in Madison and you're in California, like, if, if I need us to be in the room together desperately for the moment that brings this whole book together... You know, make it a novel. You know, mm-hmm. then I can just put us in the room, even though we're not. If I need this conversation, I can shift it any way I need. Mm-hmm. The point is, I was thinking about how fiction forms and where reality is and where truth is, and it was a, a walk I was taking. I sort of meld the girlfriend with the writer Alexander Hamon with Sasha Hamon, but uh, the Bosnian writer. But we've been walking down the street and talking. But you know, he writes so much about family history and Sarajevo and 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 what life has dealt him as it feeds into fiction, you know, this loss of a city and all that. So, and I was thinking, again, it terrified me when I was growing up and dreaming of being a writer in suburbia. What is one going to write if all, you know, all my stories, that's, it's in the story that we're talking about. You know, what if all my dreams are just, you know, TV shows playing in my <laughs> ear when I slept? That's I, literally the suburban experience of off to school and then watching TV until my eyes bled, you know. So anyway, <laughs> but um, but I, I, my friends, I was thinking literally about the absence of my family history that, again, as American Jews have been here for so many generations, they literally don't know anything. And I thought, you know, that I don't even, if I wanted to write a family history, a fictionalized family history, that I wouldn't even have enough for a story. And I think that's the idea, that's where I got the idea for the numbered sections of, you know, it, the feel of a giant, fat, 63-chapter book 
but really, if it's my family history, it's, it's there. <laughs> it's a fragmented story. So that that was it. It was compressing. That I, that is literally the whole history of my family fictionalized, <laughs> and it comes out to one short story in tiny paragraphs. <laughs> You're listening to Writers on Writing, and I am talking with Nathan Englander, and his new collection of short stories is what we talk about when we talk about Anne Frank. Would you read to us? I would. Um, and I have a puppy in my lap if she wakes up there. I may add some barking to the reading, <laughs> um, depending on who goes by downstairs. <laughs> protecting me. It's very dangerous. Here. Um, the story I will read from is... Uh, Let's see, here's one. It's called Free Fruit for Young Widows. Mm-hmm. Um, and I won't set it up because I'm a bad setter-upper. I'll just read you a couple of pages at okay. the front. When the Egyptian president, Gamal Abdel Nasser, took control of the Suez Canal, threatening Western access to that vital route, an agitated France shifted allegiances, joining forces of Britain and Israel against Egypt. This is a fact neither here nor there, except that during the 1956 Sinai campaign, there were soldiers in the Israeli army and soldiers in the Egyptian army who ended up wearing identical French-supplied uniforms to battle. Not long into the sighting, an Israeli platoon came to rest at a captured Egyptian camp to the east of Bir Gafgafa in the Sinai Desert. There, Private Shimi Gezer, formerly Shimon Biberblatt of Warsaw, Poland, sat down to eat at a makeshift outdoor mess. Four armed commandos sat down with him. He grunted. They grunted. Shimmy dug into his lunch. A squad made of Shimmy came over to join them. Professor Tendler, who was then only Private Tendler, not yet a professor and not yet even in possession of a high school degree, placed the tin cup that he was carrying on the edge of the table, taking care not to spill his tea. Then he took up his gun and shot of the commandos in the head. They fell quite neatly. The first two who had been facing Professor Tendler tipped back off the bench into the sand. The second pair who had their backs to the professor and were still staring open-mouthed at their dead friends fell face down, the sound of their skulls hitting the table somehow more violent than the report of the gun. Shocked by the murder of four fellow soldiers, Shimmy Gezer tackled his friend. To Professor Tendler, who was much bigger than Shimmy, the attack was more startling than threatening. Tendler grabbed hold of Shimmy's hands while screaming, Egyptians, Egyptians, in Hebrew. He was using the same word about the same people in the same desert that had been used thousands of years before. The main difference of the old stories are to be believed was that God no longer raised his own fist in the fight. Professor Tendler quickly managed to contain Shimmy in a bear hug. Egyptian commandos confused, Tendler said, switching to Yiddish. The enemy, the enemy joined you for lunch. Shimmy listened. Shimmy calmed down. Professor Tendler, thinking the matter was settled, let Shimmy go. As soon as he did, Shimmy swung wildly. He continued attacking because who cared who those four men were? They were people. They were human beings who had sat down at the wrong table for lunch. They were dead people who had not had to die. You could have taken them prisoners, Shimmy yelled. Halt, he screamed in German. That's all, halt. Then, with tears streaming and fists flying, Shimmy said, you didn't have to shoot. I'll stop there. Oh, thank you so much. Now, talk about this story. How did this story come about? Uh, I already mentioned the name Edgar in the uh, 
Oh, maybe I didn't. Maybe Edgar didn't come up yet. Mm-hmm. Anyway, but um, uh, yes, uh, one of the main characters in the story is named Edgar, and that is very much after the Israeli writer Edgar Carrot. But mm-hmm. um, that and the reader, actually, I, I thank him as my hairiest muse and the acknowledgments. And Edgar has a collection coming out next month that I actually co-translated. But um, we were in Italy doing a talk, and and. And after the talk, we'd gone up to a friend of mine had surprised us and ended up at the reading, and we'd ended up on her roof talking late into the night. And he told a very loaded family story. And in, in the taxi back to our hotel, I'd said to him in Hebrew, you know, just wanting to be, the story is born of the confusion that forms between the overplight Americans and straight-talking, you know, brusque Israelis, you know, sweet mm-hmm. as he is. But I'd said to him, you know, do you mind, I, I, it was a had a narrative thing that really grabbed me, and I wanted to address this personal family story in a narrative way. So I said to him, you know, do you mind if I, you know, talk about this story a story? And he basically heard it as me asking for the story and said, uh, you know, sure, take it, it's yours. You know, he writes about talking fish and, you know, women, you know, who turn into men at midnight, and, he, you know, he's Kafkaesque or beyond that to the extreme, and, and sort of he, he gifted me this, family story and i actually for once i was like i will take that gift and of course it changed in a million different ways and it's set in a fruit market and all of that stuff but yes i consider this story a gift of a friend Hmm, interesting um it's funny i i read one of your stories um peep show actually i read an abbreviated version of this story years ago in a in a best erotic fiction or best erotic stories of of 2001 when i when i picked up this book i went wait a minute i've seen that book i've seen that story so i went to my bookshelf and found the best erotic stories of 2001 and so i was curious about two things one did you cut cut it to fit into the erotic stories or did you lengthen it to fit into your own um, that's funny. I don't think anyone has, uh, I've not heard about that <laughs> anthology in exactly back to, you know, a decade ago or more. But, um, no, I think they, uh, asked for an excerpt and, you know, put it in the excerpted form. But, uh, I, I again, along with Best American, that is surely an honor to have been included in Best Erotic Fiction. But, um, and, you know, and I don't see the story as so erotic when you look at the whole thing. Right. But nonetheless, they're, they're well, yeah, with what with it in this collection, it's not. Well, yeah. It's interesting. Well, it's a, oh, well, thank you. It's a yes. It's a. I see the bigger question in there. The point is, I really believe I'm such a again a believer in short stories too. You know, it's, uh, I love fiction as a whole, but I love the short story form, and I feel like a collection. Same as when you finish a novel, if a collection is working, you should just have the wind knocked out of you. You should feel that full sense of novelistic completion if, if, if you're one of the people who thinks that's some sort of higher thing. But I think, you know, nothing less for a collection than, than you know, when it's, when it's on fire than a novel that's doing the same. You know, the same as if you'd read a novel and one of the chapters wouldn't fit. You'd be like, what's that doing there? I really think there better be an arc. You can't see over the radio, but I'm making wild hand motions on my couch. <laughs> but, you know, there should really be that, that thematic arc and, and the way the elements of a book are in conversation. You know, a book should, needs to function as a whole. When you read it, you know, I always think of that Harry Met Sally character when he starts, you know, it would give me apoplexy, where he, in the movie he says, you know, he reads the last page of a book first and mm-hmm. then starts at the mm-hmm. beginning. Like, I'd go crazy. But you can read stories out of order, et cetera. Anyway, my point is 
something snapped in me these last couple of years. I've been working on a play that's opening at the Public Theater in New York in the fall, and I've been working, Jonathan Forward talking into uh, translating the new American Haggadah, which I you know has been a multi-year project that comes out in a few weeks. But something about shifts in identity, something freed something in my brain, and I wrote, I'm a very, not a slow, it's not about composition, it's about finished work. I draft compulsively, but the length, the path to finished work takes a while with me. And my point is I wrote five of the eight stories in this book in a year, which is basically should have taken me 20. Mm-hmm. But once, once I had that shape and once I knew it was a book and I was looking at it, I thought about other work and I thought about other stories that really fit with what I was writing. And so, yes, everything was written last year, except one story is from three years ago, you know, and one story is from, you know, the Esquire stories from three years ago, you know, the how Avenger Blooms from six years ago. And then I thought back, Peep Show was originally, I was going to include it in the first collection. I was like, it's not right, it's not ready. And then I, I pulled it from the manuscript and worked on it probably, I don't know what, if it was a year later that I finished it and it ran in the New Yorker. And again, it was so controversial. I remember this mm. one, this Israeli, this Hasidic Israeli member of parliament. It hits the sands, you know, Monday afternoon, I think, in New York. It was past midnight in Israel. And my New Yorker editor, Cressidolation, was calling me saying, somebody from the Knesset is trying to get to you. And the point is, it was, it was, all kinds of hullabaloo in the moment and letters coming in that I'm glad that they crested. I was like, you just keep those there. But, you know, our, our world has changed the way, you know, I, I just can't even say the way the Internet and, you know, and pornography and ideas of sex and all that stuff has changed so much that this story that I think, again, everything in its own time, it's very strange to curate a collection. I think this story would have changed the reception of the first book. It just, I mean, it wasn't ready anyway. But it was it was so much racier twelve years ago. Back to it being an erotic fiction, I don't think it would qualify now. But twelve years later, it seems almost a homey nostalgic <laughs> metaphor. Right? It's just not racy anymore, and that's a really strange thing in the time of my career. You know, you know, the twelve years between first book and third book to see that this story reads so much more sweetly, even to me now. It's a whole different story. But yes, it really felt. When I had this book together, it felt like an anchor story for this book, and it's it's functions as such. It really is of this book. It's strange when you hunt scenes and think, when I have the time, you know, when it's finally time for me to step back, it's really strange to see how something written that much, you know, written a decade before can fit and be just of a piece, which it surely is. Mm. Well, it's just been a delight talking to you, and and I, like I said, I just these are killer stories, and and uh, you know, I just I just love your writing, and and thanks so much for taking the time. Oh, you're really so nice for reading and for having me on your show. It's been a ton of fun. Thank you. Thank you. That was Nathan Englander, and his collection is what we talk about when we talk about Anne Frank, published by Knopf, and uh, really is, if if you uh, like short stories, if you love short stories, definitely check this one out. It uh, you, might, you may have seen the New Yorker story back in uh, December, I think it was the December 5th issue, and I, I get the New Yorker, and every month I or every week right <laughs> every week I scan the table of contents see what fiction and poetry is in and uh, so often I you know will glance at the stories and and read you know the first sentence and um, most often I seem to put it down I don't know maybe everyone else out there listening reads every story in every New Yorker I don't but this one 
drew me in and I stayed with it and was just dazzled and then was happy to find out this book was coming out. Anyway, I'm going to take a short break and when we return we will have Pam Houston with us. Uh, so stay with us and uh, be right back. <laughs> see you go Come back baby Let's talk it over One more time My heart's full of sorrow Mama aching tears Gone 24 hours child Seemed like a thousand years Come back, baby, let's talk it over one more time. Talk it over before you go away. Come back, baby. Let's talk it over one more time. Howdy, y'all. Howdy. Listen to Riders on Right every Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. With Miss Barbara and Miss Murray. Did we say it was Wednesday? Wednesday at 9? Wednesday. In the morning? Wednesday. <laughs> the opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the Writers on Writing on 88.9 KUCI-FM in Irvine. I'm Barbara DeMarca Barrett, and uh, Pam Houston is not yet with us, and I hope she'll be with us real soon. So I'm going to put on a little music and uh, just stay with us for another moment or two.
Because there's nothing that I'd rather do Got the boys here with me Man, they can really play high Yeah, the boys in the band here They can really play high Well, the groove they get Jay with harp from outer space Well I've come here tonight To play the blues for you And we are back, uh, Writers on Writing, and I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, as I said before, and at the top of the hour, and you're listening to KUCI-FM in Irvine, and I have Pam Houston on the line, and before we bring her on, let me just say that she's the award-winning author of books including Cowboys Are My Weakness, Waltzing the Cat, A Little More About Me, and Sighthound. Her stories have been selected for the Best American Short Stories, the O'Henry Awards, the Pushcart Prize, and the Best American Short Stories of the Century. Um, a collection of essays, a little, a little more about me, was published by Norton in the fall of 1999. Um, Pam teaches in the graduate writing program at University of California, Davis, and she's here to talk about her new novel, Contents May Have Shifted, published by Norton. Hi, Pam. 
Hello. Hi. Great to have you on. Um, I've been an admirer of your work since, I guess, since Cowboys Are My Weakness came out. Um, there's always been an honesty about your writing that that sort of bleeds through everything everything you write, everything I read of yours anyway. And I'm curious if that was how it's always been. Was it easy for you at the beginning? Was it like this at the beginning? Or did you ever have to kind of battle through what writers battle through to sort of find their own voice? Well, you know, honestly, I think voice was something I was lucky enough to find pretty early. You know, if we're if we're talking about voice, I'm also sort of a confessor. You know, I'm not. For me, I I don't I don't feel shy or embarrassed about. You know, for me, when I'm writing, I'm trying so hard to get at some kind of truth about myself through a story. You know, by shaping it into a story or a truth about the world as I experience it, or something along those lines that. When I actually get there, when I get the metaphors right, and when I get the, the the story to 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 come close to telling the truth, I'm so happy that I've achieved that. It doesn't really occur to me to be embarrassed or to try to hide behind it, or you know. So, but but voice, the cadence and rhythm of my voice, if that's what you're particularly asking about, mm-hmm. it came pretty early, and I and I don't know where from. You know, I don't know where from, but it's. Uh, I know when I'm in it, and I and I have for a long time. It's such a gift, you know. I think uh, so many writers battle with voice, and and maybe part of it is that aspect of you, you know not like you said not not hiding, not needing to hide behind anything, you know, like not being afraid of revealing the self, and and uh, you know not being afraid to to leak out personal items, I suppose. Yeah. Well, like I say, you know, I, I've always sort of thought my job was to to go out in the world and, and try to recognize the things that resonate with me, the things that really arrest my attention, because I've always believed that those, um, those pieces of the outer landscape, the outer world, are reflecting somehow the inner landscape, and, um, you know, which is just a, just a way to define metaphor, really, but, but picking the right ones and picking the right ones to sit next to the other right ones has always seemed to me, you know, kind of the the essence of storytelling and and letting the story kind of uh, distill up, you know, out of those concrete physical details like, like you know, like whiskey and, and letting the story emerge up out of that. And so by the time that whole process has happened, even if it's, it's almost always a, a, an emotion to me that's deeply personal, and it's often a story that's deeply personal and somewhat autobiographical. But by the time all that has happened, kind of the alchemy of that, it, it doesn't feel like it anymore. You know, it, it just doesn't feel like a, a, a personal reveal, though, though I, you know, often it is. It happens to be. Hmm. Well, talk about uh, contents may have shifted in terms of the the structure because it's uh i mean it's it's so my sort of book with short chapters and and um not chronological in order in the typical way um mm-hmm. you have i think it's something like 144 short chapters and um just talk about that how the structure yeah. came about and how the story came about well um you know one thing i can say about that form the 144 very short chapters that are not immediately, obviously related to each other, 
that's me doing exactly what I'm inclined to do. And in, in, in a way, all my other books have been written that way, too. And then I kind of pulled all the strings and smoothed things out and made them feel more linear, you know, and logical. In this book, I was kind of doing, doing exactly what, what I'm inclined to do, which is to leave all those, those little miracles discreet from each other, you know, and see how they added up together. Um, the book actually started because I was uh, in asked to come to Wisconsin to the Wisconsin Book Festival to read at an evening called Unveiled, where we were supposed to read brand new work that was untested and untried. And I took the assignment so literally that I didn't start writing until I was on the plane to Wisconsin. And <laughs> in my panic of having about 48 hours to compose something to read in front of a lot of people and a lot of other writers I admired, um, you know, I just, I did what I do when I'm pressed, which is like, okay, what, what out there in the world glimmered at me? What, what arrested my attention? And, and that became the first 12 little mini chapters of the book. Um, and because I move around so much myself, they had titles like Juno, Alaska, and Marfa, Texas, and Great Exuma, Bahamas. And, and, uh, and I read them that evening, and Richard Bausch, who was a, a, a friend of mine and a writer mm-hmm. I admire so much, said, um, oh, write a hundred of those, and it's your next book. And, and I have always thought in twelves rather than tens for some reason. And so I thought, well, no, 144. So that's really where the book was born, that night in Wisconsin. And, and then I, you know, I spent a year thinking, really, can I do this? <laughs> you know, is this a book? And, um, and, and six years later, <laughs> six years later, it, 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 it is. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's it's such a great structure, I think, and such a great way to construct. Um, I, and I'm curious too, because you you are such a short story writer, I would think that that it it kind of fit the sensibility of a short story writer in terms of a short story writer writing a novel. Well, every everything you've written, novels to short stories to even book reviews and feature articles. Everything I've written, I think about as smaller pieces, you know, hopefully each of which that have their own integrity, you know, good raw materials, small pieces combining with other small pieces to make larger (laughs) pieces, you know, to make larger pieces. And I am sort of a collagist that way. Hmm. Interesting. Will you read to us? This would be a great time to just hear a little little bit for... uh for those listeners who are either not familiar with your work or at least not familiar with this current work? Sure, sure. Um, I thought I might read um, this chapter. It just leapt out at me. Chapter 25, it takes place in the country of Laos, mm-hmm. and it takes place in a village called Banzang Hai. Mm-hmm. My guide, Zai, and I, are standing in the warm mist of a Mekong River morning in the village of Banzang Hai, Laos, watching an unusually tall Laotian tend his boiling vats of Lao Lao, the rice wine moonshine that has put his village on the map. Monkeys scream in the trees above us, and a gentle-faced woman stands nearby, holding a glass I fear is meant for me. It is slightly after 8 a.m., and in America... That would be a good enough reason to decline politely. But here in Laos, 
where decorum is far more rigorous and complicated than it is in America. I'm pretty sure there isn't going to be a way out of drinking the pickled Mekong water that is about to come from the steaming, rusted 50-gallon drum. I reassure myself that no self-respecting amoeba could possibly live in 80-proof hooch and quickly down the glass of white I am offered, which gets me another glass and then a glass of red, which I realize the second it goes down my throat without searing my tonsils isn't nearly as strong as the white. I am seized with regret, flooded by premonitions of feverish vomiting in a Laotian healthcare facility. <laughs> I do what any sophisticated world traveler would do and stuff an entire antibacterial wipe into my mouth. And during the tour of the brightly painted temple, suck every drop of juice out of it I can and swallow. Outside the temple, a beautiful woman is making ferns and bougainvillea and daisy petals out of colored paper. I buy a small bouquet from her and ask if I can take her picture. She says something to Zai and he translates. She says she should take your picture because you are the beautiful one. And I can tell by the tone in his voice that he thinks she is mistaken. Zai is the most formal guide I have ever had in Asia, which is saying a great deal. He had been a monk for three months at 18. Then he became one again for one day last year when his mother died so he could carry her body, he says, to the other side. His English is impeccable, except that he says electric city when he means electricity and comfort table when he means comfortable, and anyone can see why he would think that was correct. At least twice a day, he says, if I am not speaking right, you will please graduate me, <laughs> but I rarely do. I'm pretty sure I have managed to eat the antibacterial wipe clandestinely until we are back on the boat heading downriver to the magical city of Luang Prabang, and Zai says, have I told you yet how the Buddha died? When I say no, he says, he was invited to the house of a friend for dinner, and they were serving pock. Pock, I say. Pock, pock, he says, mildly impatient with me as usual, and he makes an oinking noise in his throat. Aha, I say, and Zai smiles. He knew the pock was bad, Zai says, knew even that it would kill him, but he ate it anyway because it was most important not to offend his host. I guess that's the difference, I almost say between Buddha and me, but on the off chance that Zai has paid me a compliment, I smile out at the muddy river and nod. That's great. That is so funny. Uh, <laughs> gosh, I love the the uh, wipes. When I read that, I, I think it was late at night, I'm falling asleep, because I always read before I go to sleep, and I'm reading, and it, I laughed and woke myself up, so... Um, <laughs> um, Gosh, you know the the you talk about this a lot, and everybody asks you about the the border between fiction and nonfiction, and and uh, uh, talk about it again because you know it's so interesting <laughs> that you you write set from such an autobiographical place, and in this book, your main character is named Pam, like you, um, and so many things about her life are are similar to your life. I, I mean, as far as I can see. I, I don't know you personally, so I can't really say, but, you know, talk about that, about, you know, taking what you live through and, and turning it into fiction. Sure. Um, well, you know, I, I don't really ever get tired of talking about this, honestly, because it seems like a topic that we as a culture don't ever get tired of talking <laughs> about. Um, you know, again, 
the fact that this book lives in what I would call the area rather than the line, you know, between fiction and nonfiction, mm-hmm. um, is does not make it different from any of my other books. You know, all, all my books do that. I'm a I'm a traveler. I throw myself out in the world into into extreme situations on purpose. That's my nature. I don't do it for my writing. I do it because that's what I do. And as a result, I, I come home with a lot of stories to tell. You know, I always have plenty of stories to tell about my interactions with the world. Plus, like a lot of us, I'm constantly trying to be better and bigger and broader in my thinking. I'm trying to learn, you know, what, what the world is trying to teach me. And I pay really close attention. You know, I, I don't, I would say I don't have much imagination. I, I'm a really keen observer and I can turn those observations into language. Um, I also am a lover of the fictional form. You know, I don't, I don't believe that the novel is dead. I, I believe that anyone who says that is, is reading the wrong novels, you know, but I do think <laughs> just like the memoir, the novels are shifting and changing and, and, you know, like, like all art changes over time. So, so for me, the important thing is to tell the best story I can tell. And, and in my case, it happens to be based on my life. But I want the freedom that fiction gives to shape and nuance. And I want to be able to say that great line that I thought of after the fact, you know, that, that, I, that I didn't think of at the time. I want the story to have the right amount of characters. One of the ways this book got fictionalized, just as an example, is that my editor felt that there were too many women. You know, I'm I'm blessed with a lot of fantastic women friends, and she said there's too many names, there's too many people to keep track of. You know, so I I merged the women in the book. You know, I I mm-hmm. took three women and made them one character. You know, things like that, mm-hmm. which are simply about making the story, uh, you know, a more coherent thing, a a, a a more shapely thing. And for me, you know, it, it just doesn't matter to say this really happened to me this way. I mean, I know that's important to a lot of people, and I respect that, but it's not important to me. I'm trying to make a, I'm trying to make a beautiful story. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm trying to make a beautiful and powerful story, and so I happen to use the raw materials of my life. Um, and because the conversation has gotten so intense in the last several years since Oprah and James Fry and all of that, you know, it's just... It's just simpler for me to call it fiction because mm-hmm. because I do want to take liberties. I want to take liberties with the truth if it makes the story better. Now, having said that, this is, you know, an extremely autobiographical work. I have been to all these places. I would never, you know, write about a place I had been because for me so much of the story comes through the place. It, you know, it, the place suggests the story to me. Um I have been on in crash position on a lot of airplanes, you know. <laughs> I'm always negotiating the questions of faith and domesticity and freedom. And, you know, I mean, this is clearly my story. And I, I wanted to call myself Pam in this one to enter that conversation, you know, in a kind of a, you know, almost an aggressive way. I want to say, yeah, okay, so here's where I live. I live right here on the boundary, you know, in the boundary waters between fiction and nonfiction. And, and I think that ought to be okay, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah, I love it. I mean, it, it just makes perfect sense, especially when, you know, like you said, you have things you you want to bring in, but you may have to combine people. You may have to, you know, 
invent dialogue or, or, or whatever, and you don't have to worry about, did this really happen? I, I think it's great. I, I yeah. just, I love it. Um, well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, we have just a few minutes left with Pam Houston. We're talking about contents may have shifted. And um curious what you might say to, or what you do say to writers in terms of the marketplace. You know, it's like these days agents want to be able to um, have a pitch line for your book and to be able to then go to editors and say, you know, this is what the book is and sum it up in a line or two. And when you're writing sort of fiction that's maybe more character-based and less um, plot-driven or at least chronological plots per se, how, what do you say to writers who are, are doing this kind of work and, and then how to market it or how to interest an agent um, who will then interest an editor? You know, it's very hard. You know, they all want you to sum it up. And uh, do you find that problematic? Yeah. I mean, for you... I, I still you know. can't sum up this book, and I've now been on tour with it for a month. <laughs> I mean, honestly, every time I try out a different sentence and it always sounds completely limiting and diminishing mm-hmm. to me in my mm-hmm. own ears... Um, I have never been good. You know, I, I mean, one thing I can say is I'm, I'm lucky that I'm not trying to get my first book published now, <laughs> you know. Even the idea of writing a synopsis just yeah. makes my eyes glaze over. You know, I can't even, I always say, well, I'll just send you two pages, mm-hmm. you know, because as you said at the beginning, you know, for me it's all about voice. So right. you either like my voice or you don't. And, um, and that's, what my book is. I mean, my book is primarily this voice that's telling these stories. So uh, I could never write a pitch line for this book, you know, except something inane like, I have been in crash position on the airlines, you know, (laughs) 17 times. (laughs) And that's not what the book's about at all, you know. Um, I'm trying to get with the modern world, and in that regard, I have... I, I have joined Facebook finally, and now I tweet. <laughs> That's about <laughs> the most I can say for myself. I, I don't, you know, I don't, I, I don't give that kind of advice. I don't know how to. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I spend lots of time with my students helping them make their work better because, of course, in many ways that's its own reward. But I, I honestly wouldn't have the slightest idea. And, that may say something about, you know, that desire to, for a pitch line or for an easy summary. You know, the best books. Like, how would you write a pitch line for Beloved? You know, <laughs> how would you write a pitch line for White Noise? Right. You know, if you think about the great books, you know, hopefully they're far too complicated. You know, which which maybe it's someone's job. Like, maybe it's the in-house editor's job to come up with the pitch line, you know, for Beloved, mm-hmm. right? And maybe mm-hmm. that's what... Maybe they're good at that, and maybe they can, but, man, I wouldn't know how to. Well, and like you said, you know, include two pages. You know, write a little yeah. letter and, and include the first two pages, and if if uh, they like your voice, maybe you have a shot. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, we're almost at the end of our time here. Um, man, so you mentioned tweeting. You mentioned Facebook. Social media, I mean, where... Is that in terms of importance for you? I mean, do you feel like you have, are you pressured to do that more and more by your publisher? Or, or, you know, I mean, so many authors are, so many of us have to, you know, have this public presence or online presence. I mean, how, how do you relate to all that? Well, I think I, I think I found 
uh, you know, I, I, I think I, I, I found, I put pressure on myself. I mean, to be honest, it wouldn't be fair to say that my publisher pressured me. I think I felt like I was maybe doing this book a disservice, you know, by not sort of getting with the program. And, and so I learned. And to tell you the truth, I like Twitter. I, I think it's, I think it's smart and it's a form and it's fun. Um, I, I like it so much more than I expected to. Facebook, um, you know, uh, oh, and also the Norton tweeters, the WW Norton tweeters are such fun guys. You know, they're, they're fun to tweet with. And so that has been a fun part of this book tour. Um, my friend Mike Magnuson, who, uh, who used to live in LA and now lives in Wisconsin, he gave this talk, um, and it was about basically don't believe, you know, don't believe the BS on your own Facebook page or you'll never be a writer again. <laughs> and there's truth in that. It's a very smart talk. Um, and uh, and I heard it and I took it to heart because I'm doing it. And, you know, of course, there's fun things about Facebook. You know, I came home one day and Russell Banks friended me, you know. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, this writer that I admire. You know, it's not without its pleasures. Um but it is a distraction from the writing, and it is, you know, this kind of glossified version of yourself. And But, you know, a, a book tour is that anyway. So it's like, well, you're out there selling your book. You're going to do it. You're going to make yourself sound prettied up, and then the next time you better be ready to get back in the dark and ugly places of yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what's going to make the next book. Do you write when you're on the road? Not really. Mm-hmm. I mean, I write when I'm on the road. I don't really write when I'm on tour. Mm-hmm. But when you're just, traveling, you write. When I'm traveling, I write. Oh, yes. In fact, I write best when I'm traveling. Mm-hmm. Um, I I have a rule that if I'm on an airplane, you know, on every, aerofl- every airplane flight, it must be an FAA regulation. But the captain comes on and says something like, well, we're going to be landing in about 45 minutes or 50 minutes or an hour and 15 minutes. But somewhere in that range, he's basically telling everybody to go to the bathroom before they put the seatbelt sign on. Mm-hmm. And I have just a personal rule that I have to write from that moment until wheels down. <laughs> That's great. Um, it also has the advantage of distracting me from the landing. Um, <laughs> but also, you know, it's just, you know, I always tell writers they should do something that they do super regularly and make a rule for themselves. I'm going to write while my kids are at soccer practice. I'm going to write, you know, right after my whatever Chinese cooking class. Um, and so for me, I'm on so many planes, that's really probably the most regular thing I do is land in an airplane. <laughs> that's That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, but yeah, finding that time, that thing you do all the time, that you have mm-hmm. that space and that you are committed to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ah, at the end of our time, any uh, last words for, for the writers, the fiction writers slash memoirists listening? Well, I guess, you know, the words that I think of every day, and um, it's an old saw, it's Henry James, but he said a writer should strive to be a person on which nothing is lost. And that's the way I try to pay attention in the world. That's my practice. And for me, as I said, that's where it all starts. It all starts with the things out there in the world that I witness that I can't resist. Mm. Great. Great stuff and wonderful writing and just a big delight talking to you. Um, 
you ever come to Southern California, let's have you at our Pen on Firewriter Salon and, and bring in a hundred people to uh, talk with you and hear that you. That would be super fun. I am coming to the LA Times Book Festival, so I'm excited Excellent. about that. Excellent. I'll be there too. So uh, okay. be great to see you. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you very much. You're welcome. That was Pam Houston, and her book, her wonderful book, is Contents May Have Shifted, uh, published by Norton. And uh, like she said, she'll be at the L.A. Times Festival of Books the end of April. I think it's something like the third week of April this time at USC. And um, she'll be on a panel. I'll be on a panel. There's excellent panels. I think it's pretty much free or at least low, low cost. So, um so I hope to see you there, and uh, thank you for listening. You've been listening to Writers on Writing. I'm going to leave you with a quote by uh, John Jakes, um, who encapsulates what the authors have been saying and uh, that have been on this morning. And he said, Be yourself. Above all, let who you are, what you are, what you believe, shine through every sentence you write, every piece you finish. And so until next time, thank you for listening to Writers on Writing on 88.9 FM KUCI. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett. My book is Pen on Fire, and uh, we'll talk to you next week.